Okay, so without any further ado, uh, Parshas Truma. In fact, we should begin by saying Chodesh Tov. We are, uh, we're standing here on Rosh Chodesh Adar, which is not, uh, it's not an accident that we're about to read Parshas Truma. I mean, it, this is not a quirk of the calendar. This comes out on the regular. You can, in fact, expect the Parshios of Truma and Tetzavah to always coincide with, uh, with, with uh, Rosh Chodesh Adar, and like, why, why might that be? Do they have anything to do with each other whatsoever? So the truth is um, that, you know, once you start, once you enter the Chodesh Adar, of course, you're going to start talking about Purim, like that's, you know, around the corner, and in order to talk about Purim, obviously, you're going to talk about Amalek, and you can say, well, Amalek doesn't really have anything to do with Chodesh Adar per se, they're just, you know, related to the holiday of Purim, which happened to coincide, it happened to fall out with Chodesh Adar, but, but that's not true. Like, we know that that's not true, because the Gemara tells us that when Haman, when Haman does his little, his poor, his lottery, he does the lottery, and it falls out on Chodesh Adar, and he's like so excited, like, wow, that's amazing, oh, that's, yes, awesome. Why is he excited? Well, he's excited because he knows that Moshe died in Chodesh Adar. He's like, well, Moshe, Moses, that famous Jew guy, so he died in Chodesh Adar, Zion Adar, to be, to be precise, and, uh, and now I see from my lottery, my, my random chaos machine, that we're going to get to kill the Jews in Chodesh Adar, and that's absolutely beautiful, makes him very, very excited. So it almost seems like to, to Haman, there is some sort of a connection between Adar and the ultimate destruction of the Jewish people as he sees it. So there is some sort of connection there. Now, if you look at the Gemara, the Gemara draws this connection and takes it even further. Because after all, the Gemara says in, in, um, in Maseches Churim, the Gemara says, Moshe minat Torah minayin. Where do you find Moshe in the Torah? And it says, well, Moshe is, is hinted at in the Torah when it says, Bishagam hu basar. It's a Pasuk in Bereshis. After which point, the Gemara says, well, Haman minat Torah minayin. Where do you find Haman in the Torah? And it's like, Haman's not in the Torah. Haman lives a thousand years after the Torah is written. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. We find a Pasuk for him too. Did you eat from the tree? I told you not to eat. And of course, Hamin, is it from? Did you in fact eat from the tree? Is the exact same uh, letters as the word Haman. And then the Gemara says, Esther minat Torah minayin. Where do you find Esther in the Torah? And it says, And it says, Mordechai minat Torah minayin. Well, v'yatok kachalcha b'samim rosh mordoror. And mordoror in Aramaic is maridachio, which sounds a lot like Mordechai. So the Gemara has finally figured out a way to establish that Moshe is hinted at in the Torah before he's born, and Haman is hinted at in the Torah before he's born, and Esther and Mordechai are hinted at in the Torah before they're born as well. But the Gemara asks these four questions together as if seemingly there's some sort of a relationship between the four. Now, the final three, obviously, if I said to you, what do Haman and Esther and Mordechai have in common? You'd be like, Persia, Persia, circa Achaemenid Empire, after Cyrus. Like, that's what you would say. And you'd be right. Obviously, you'd be 100% correct. But here, here's who you would not bring into that, into that discussion. You wouldn't be like, uh, Abraham for two points. No, you wouldn't say Abraham, because like Abraham lived a long time before that. So I would say Moshe. Moshe also lived a long time before that. So kind of, clearly, one of us does not belong. And that one who doesn't belong is Moshe. And yet, just to bring back what we said merely moments ago, Haman thinks, that very self-same Haman, Haman thinks that because Moshe died in Adar, it's a great time to kill the Jews. So Haman also draws that connection, not merely the Talmud. Why? Why would that be the case? Now, I hear your mind saying, Sprung, what does this have to do with Parsha's Truma? And the answer, of course, is everything. So be patient. Be patient. You'll see. We know. We know that Parsha's Truma teaches us about the building of the Mishkan, the creation of the temple, of the Mikdash. Now, you're going to say, well, Mishkan and Mikdash are not the same word, and you're correct, but the Gemara draws a parallel between the Mishkan and the Mikdash. It says, for all intents and purposes, they are the same. Granted, there are subtle differences, but perhaps not for today. So, that Mishkan, 
Akash Baruch tells Moshe, here's how you're going to have to build it. Darbeo B'nei Yisrael V'yichu L'Truma. First, you're going to go to the Jews and you're going to say, well, we need some money. Like, you're going to have a building campaign. You better get the money. And v'zos ha-truma ha-shetikhu b'yitam zahav v'chesef u'nechoshes u'schelas v'argamam v'talashani v'shesh v'izim v'ros e'lim adam v'ros t'chosh v'atzai shitim, etc., etc., etc. The Torah lists a number of building materials that we're going to require to build this temple. And then the Torah says, so you're going to make this golden box, and it's going to be such and such cubits by such and such, two and a half this way, one and a half that way, one and a half deep, and that's going to be your special ark. And then you're going to have uh, a showbread table. It's going to be a table, golden table. Who doesn't like a golden table? It's going to be this much. It's going to be too high, and one this way, and one that way, and that's the dimensions of the table. And then it tells you about the dimensions of the golden candelabrum, because after all, what kind of a temple can you have if you don't have a big golden candle in it? Got to have the golden candle. And then it tells you about the roof, and it tells you about the walls, and it tells you about the chutzer, and the courtyard, and what goes on inside, what goes on outside, and as you're reading from this, first of all, you just, you're thinking, wow, this is like the boringest thing I've ever encountered. Why does the Torah have to tell me the dimensions of the golden box? Like, I'm never gonna talk, I'm never gonna see the golden box, I'm not the Kohen Gadol. Why do I have to know? He said, well, you will, well, we have to know exactly how how to make these things because they're exceedingly precise, and if we don't tell you the dimensions thereof, then you might assume that they could be done for whatever whatever dimensions you want, arbitrarily. That's all fine and dandy. The Torah, of course, had to tell, Hashem had to tell Moshe how to build the menorah and how to build the Mizbeach. But why do I need to know what the dimensions were? Why is that important to me? Why do I have to go every single year through the sedras of Truma and Tetzava and Vayakal and Pekude? Why do I have to do that? It's like it's so redundant, and I'm not the architect. And I think that, uh, I think that most Jews... I should say, let me correct myself, not most Jews. Most Jews who read the Parsha have this problem. Not most Jews don't read the Parsha at all, so they don't, they don't have any such problem. But the ones who do, the ones who are doing Shnai and Mikra, every time they get to Parsha's Truman, they start ripping their hair out because like, I, I just don't need to know this. Um, now, if, if you're familiar with the learnings that we do, so you already know the difference between a Pesucha and a Stuma, which means an open break in the Torah and a closed break in the Torah. Now, the difference is absolutely enormous. We're just going to call them major sections or meta sections and then subsections. So the Torah is written in outline form, as we've discussed many times. When the Torah gives you a pesucha, which means an open break to the end of the line, that means we're entering a new section. And then within that section, there are subsections, like 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 2A, 2B, 2C, 2D, etc., etc. A closed section, when there's writing on either side of the text, in the, I'm sorry, when there's writing on either side of the blank space in the line, that's called a situma, a closed break, a closed paragraph, and that is a subsection of an open break. So if you go, for instance, to to page 448 in the Stone Chumash, in Pasuk Chaf Gimel 23, there is a an open break, and which means we're about to hit a new section. It says, Vasisa Shochan Shitim, you're going to make the golden table, and then when it finishes with the table on page 450, you get another open break. The idea being that the table is kind of, it's not kind of, the table is its own thing. The golden table in the Beis HaMikdash has its own section. Why? Because it's a self-contained idea. There's a kli, there's a vessel called shulchan, called table, and table goes on its own. And then after you have that open break, it continues on Pasuk Lamed Aleph, which means we start now telling you about the golden menorah. And of course, that's in its own section. Well, 
this is problematic for a bunch of different reasons. Again, intuitively, intuitively, if the Torah gave every single one of the kalim, every one of the vessels, its own pesucha, its own section, meta section, it would have been very intuitive. So Aaron gets one, the the ark, and then the and then the shulchan, and then the menorah, and then the mizbeach hazahav, and then the mizbeach hachitzon. If all of those things got their own pesuchos, we'd be great. Like that would be so intuitive. The problem is. Oh boy, it doesn't. And not only, oh boy, it doesn't, but like it really, really doesn't. Let's take a look at just how seemingly corrupted these paragraphs are. The menorah does not get its own open paragraph. The menorah stops in the middle on page 452, gives you a small break, and starts talking about the roof. The roof, for crying out loud. The roof. Why are you telling me about the, the, uh, what do they call it? Canvases? They're not really canvases. Um, they're not really canvases. They're made out of a number of things. But essentially the roof, the sheets that are spread above the roof. Those, those skins that are above the roof are a subsection of the menorah. Huh? Why? Why, why, would, those, why would the roof, why would the coverings of the tent be a subsection of the menorah? That's strange. They should have their own section. And why, in fact, does the, does the golden altar not appear anywhere in this week's Parsha? It's at the, the tail end of Parsha's Titzave, which is next week. And like, that's incredibly baffling. But, of course, the worst problem structurally in this week's Parsha, in terms of our theory, is the Ark, the Aron. The Aron, the most important Kli, the most important fundamental foundational vessel in the whole temple is the Aron, where the Luchos go. That doesn't even get its own, its own section. It doesn't even get its own section. It's a subsection of the beginning of Parsha's Truma. So the end of Parsha's Mishpatim ends with the Psucha, which means new section. That new section is, of course, the commandment to take a building fund for God, for the temple, and that's Truma, and then a subsection of that is the Ark, and then the table gets its own section, and then the menorah gets the, gets the major section with minor subsections being the roof. I mean, <laughs> it's very, very baffling. It's very strange. So, I want to explain the idea is simply as follows. The reason why the Aron, the reason why the Ark, the Aron, does not get its own section is because the Aron is in the section of the concept called Mishkan, the concept called Temple. There's a concept called Temple. And that concept, if you were going to shrink it down into one vessel, do you know what that vessel would be? Aron. It would be the Aron. So naturally, Vyasu Aron team is a subsection of the meta section called Temple. Temple. Another way of looking at that might be to say that the definition of Mishkan really is Aron. The fact that there is this box that has the luchos in it, that's what makes the Mishkan the Mishkan. And therefore, in the section of create Mishkan, you get Aron. Now, I'll show this to you in an even deeper way. So, it says like this. Here are all of the, here are all of the, the building components that you're going to take. The Pasuk says, This is page 444, Pasuk, uh, Pasuk 8. Make for me a Mikdash, and I will dwell among them. Now let's read Pasuk 9. Like all that I show you, like I show you the form of the Mishkan and the form of the vessels, and so shall you do. What do you mean, like everything I show you? You just said, make for me a Mikdash, and I will dwell among you. Like all that I show you? Not like all that I show you. Do it like I show you. 
Kichol Asher Animar Euscha is incoherent in the statement. So Rashi, Rashi picks up on that. Rashi's like, what's second? That doesn't make any sense. So what's Kichol Asher Animar Euscha? So Rashi says, Hamikra Azem Mechuber Lemikra Shilamalahemenu. This pasuk is really an extension of the previous sentence. The previous sentence was, and you'll make for me a, a mikdash, and I will dwell among the Jewish people. Rashi says the next sentence isn't its own sentence. It's a run-on of the previous sentence. Meaning, make for me a mikdash like all that I show you. But that's not what it says. It says, make for me a mikdash and I will dwell in it. Period. Like all that I show you. So Rashi says, and I will dwell among them is a parenthetical statement. It's really one long statement. So what it's really saying is, and make for me a mikdash so that I could dwell among you just like the way that I show you how to do. Truth is, I think, I think, that in fact, the sentence is actually even more of a run-on sentence than that. I think that there's really one piece, one sentence, one statement that gets unzipped to include building materials, purpose, and structure. It goes like this. God says to Moshe, speak to the Jewish people and take for me a truma. A truma doesn't really mean a, a building fund. It doesn't mean a donation. It means a, an elevation. Take for me an elevation. And this is the elevation. And this is the elevation. You ready for the run-on sentence? It's one statement. It's one statement, which is nested. It's nested. So all of the materials that you're going to need and what you're going to do with the materials and the way that you configure those materials is one statement. It's one zipped statement. Make for me a mishkan of these, of these substances. Take these substances and form them into a mikdash. That's what the Pasuk is saying. How do you know that? Because if you look carefully at the words, you'll see that each, each one of the, of the building materials has a vav connecting it. It's not zahav kesef nechoshes. It's zahav vachesef. Unachoshes, Utecheles, Vargamon, Vitolashani, Vishesh, Vizim, Vioros Elim Adamim, Vishitim. I'm sorry, Vioros Tachashim, Vatsashitim. Every single one of the materials has a vav in the middle. Why? Why? Because we're saying it's one long statement. So it's this, and, 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 all the way down. Now you're going to say to me, but Sprung, that's not true, because, because when the Pasuk says Shem and Lama Or, it breaks that, it breaks that, that thesis. It says in Pasuk, in Pasuk 6, Pasuk above, Shem and Lama Or, it doesn't say Vishem and Lama Or, it just says Shem and Lama Or, it doesn't have the Vav, what's the difference? We'll talk more about this in parts of the Tzaveh, but the difference would be that in the beginning we're talking about, subst- about substances that are going, materials that are going to be put into the actual structure of the Beis HaMikdash. Those are and, 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 and. The things that are going, the materials that are going to be used not to create the Mikdash itself, but rather in order for the Mikdash to be used, those do not have a Vav. Why? Because they're not part of the structure. So when it says Shemen Lama Or, which means oil for lighting. It doesn't say and oil. Why not and oil? Because you don't use oil in the structure of the Beis HaMikdash. You use oil for the menorah, which is in the structure. So the gold that makes the menorah is part of the structure. The oil that goes into the menorah is not. What about Bissamim? What about the incense and all those spices? Again, those spices are used in the temple. They're not part of the structure of the temple. What about the rocks? Same thing. And therefore, they are taken out almost as a parenthetical statement to all of the building materials that are going to go into the very structure 
of the Mikdash. That's why. But it's one very long run-on sentence. So after God tells them what, what materials they're going to need, he says, what are you going to do with the materials? And he says, you're going to make for me a Mikdash. So why not say, and make for me a Mikdash like all that I show you? Because that's not the point. The point is, make for me a Mikdash so that I can dwell amongst the people. So the parent, the seemingly parenthetical statement of Vishokhanti Bisokham, and you will make for me a Mikdash and I will dwell among you, that's one sentence on its own. It's true that I'm going to need another sentence not to tell you that the way that you're going to create said Mikdash has to be under these parameters. But that's not the main point. The point is you should understand you're building for me a temple so that I can dwell among you, and here is how you're going to do it. And therefore Rashi says, well, really, when it says, when it says, like all that I am showing you, it's not its own beginning of a sentence. It's a continuation of the previous sentence. But it is separated in the Torah in Psukim because the main point is I will make a mikdash and dwell among you. And a secondary point is how said mikdash will be made. After it says, this is how you will do it, the very, we have a stuma, which is a small, a small break, meaning the next piece is going to be a subcategory of what I just said. And what is that subcategory? And you will make the ark, the aron. The reason that that's, like we said, a subcategory and not its own category, the most important kli, is because the whole mishkan really is there, is the aron. The aron is the mishkan. So it's not that the aron is a subcategory of mishkan. They are the same. The mikdash is the aron. And therefore, after I tell you the concept of what the mikdash is, I describe for you what the aron is. Now that I've finished with the Aaron, I have a, an entire break to move into the next idea. The next idea being the shulchan, the table. That is its own idea. It's a standalone idea. As opposed to the menorah, which we see, the menorah has subcategories, namely the urios, the, the, uh, the, the curtains, the curtains on the roof. The curtains are a function for some reason. They are a subcategory of the menorah. The shulchan stands on its own. So the Aaron is the idea of the whole mishkan. The shulchan is then on its own. And the, the menorah happens with the arios, with the, with the curtains. Okay, now let's go back to what we said before, something very, very fascinating. So it turns out, turns out, we said, why does Amalek care about Moshe that he dies in Adar, and, and the Torah and the Talmud puts together the Moshe Minat Torah Minayin, and Haman Minat Torah Minayin, and Mordechai and Esther, like, why are, they, why are they connected with each other? Well, well, if you read Parshas Bishalach, you know that the Jews, they leave Egypt, and they go through, they go through the sea, Right? They go through the, uh, the Yamsuf, and everything's beautiful, and they sing the Az Yashir, and it's fantastic. And then they go, and they don't have any water. And they come to a place called Rafidim. And in Rafidim, they don't have any water. They don't have any water. So they complain to Moshe. They start fighting with Moshe. And they say, why did you take us out to kill us? Why did you take us out of Egypt? You know, we could have died over there. Why would you have to make us go through all that, uh, uh, all that rigmarole and uh, getting everything together and walking out and going through the sea? Why? It would be much easier to just like, kill us in Egypt. Uh, what's the point of bringing us out here to kill us of, uh, of thirst out here? And we call that place Masa Umariva. And the Pasuk says as follows. The Pasuk says, at the end of Parsha's Peshalach, the Pasuk says that they call that place Masa Umariva. Masa Umariva. And they named that place Masa, which means test, Umariva and fight. Al Riv B'nei Yisrael, on the fight of the Jews. And on the testing of God, saying, is God among us or not? Let's listen to that very, very carefully. Let's listen to that pasuk again. It said, we call the place Masa Umariva, test and fight. Why? Because the Jews fought and tested. That's backwards. Why are you calling it Masa Umariva? You should have named the place Meriva Umasa. 
Because you say to yourself, you, you just said that Mariva came before Masa. Once again, I'll read it again. It's, it's page 390 in the stone. It's Perikud Zion, Pasuk Zion. Vayikra Shema Makom Masa Umeriva. And they named, and the name of the place was called Test and Fight. Al Riv B'nei Yisrael, on the fight of the Jews. And on the test of God saying, Is God among us or not? So like we said, Masa Umeriva is upside down chronologically. It should have been the other way. But now why is this important to us? Because the very next Pasuk is, The next Pasuk is, Amalek came and fought with the Jews in Rafidim. You say, okay, Sprung, but that's just chronological. It's not just chronological. Because the Torah tells you where they fought. It says, Why is the Torah telling you where the Jews fought with Amalek? The where is not important. The geography is not important. The important thing is that the Amalek came and attacked the Jewish people. But the Pusik is telling you, the Pusik is saying to you that the reason that Amalek attacked the Jews is because they were in Rafidim. The reason they attacked is because they were in Rafidim. What does Rafidim mean? The word Rafidim, Chazal explained, means roughly a day and their hands became weak. Their hands became weak from Torah, which means that Amalek attacked as a function, as a function of Rafidim, as a function of the fact that they became weak in Torah. Now let's see what this means. Let's see what this means. So Amalek comes, and Hashem says, and Moshe says to Yehoshua, Choose men and go and attack Amalek. And they do. The next day, Moshe has his, he does the big touchdown sign, and whenever Moshe's hands are up in the touchdown sign, the Jews are winning, and whenever Moshe's hands go down, the Jews start losing to Amalek. And after, it says, Yehoshua, Yehoshua gets the best. He weakens Amalek um, by the sword. And here's the end of, La- of Parshas. Here's the end of Parshas Bishalach. It's like, it's so strange. So strange. He's in Parshas Bishalach. Vayomer Adonai Moshe, Ksov zov zikaron basefer v'simbos na Yehoshua, ki machoim chezecher Amalek mitachas ha-shamayim. Hashem says to Moses, write this as a remembrance in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I shall surely erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. And Moshe built an altar and called its name, Hashem is my miracle. And he said, for the hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains a war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now those words are hard enough to understand, just like on a very basic level. But can I ask you a silly question that you may have, you may have wondered about before? We have something called Parsha Zachor in the Torah. We have an obligation to go to shul to listen to the mitzvah of destroying Amalek. Do you know... Where said mitzvah is in the Torah, I'll give you a hint. Not in Parshas B'Shalach. In fact, it's not in the book of Shemos. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in the end of Parshas Kiseitse. That's a Pasuk in Kiseitse. Why, if you're going to tell me, remember what Amalek did to you when you came out of Egypt. Well, maybe the right time to say that might have been, oh, I don't know, when it happened at the end of Parshas B'Shalach. But that's not what you did. Why not? Why would you separate why would you separate the, the mitzvah of destroying Amalek from when Amalek actually attacked you when you were coming out of, out of Egypt? That's so strange. So I want to say like this. You see, it turns out that in Parshas B'Shalach, at the end of Parshas B'Shalach, Moshe doesn't say that the Jews have an, an eternal war with Amalek. That's not what he said. Let's read it again. Moshe says, Shashem says, Hashem says to Moshe, Write this remembrance in the book. And put it in Yoshua's ears. I will erase the name of Amalek. Who's I? God. God. This is God's war with Amalek. Not the Jewish war with Amalek. And Moshe builds a Mizbeach and calls it Hashem Nisi. 
And he says something so weird. Moshe says that Hashem puts a hand on his chair. Ki yod al a hand on the chair of God. I didn't know God had a chair. Like God has a chair. Is it like a lazy boy? Is it one of those sharper image massage chairs? God's got a chair. And he puts his hand on his chair and swears that he'll destroy Amalek. What? What? Can I tell you something crazy? He does have a chair. Whoa, big word, sprung, big word. God's got a chair. You know what God's chair looks like? The ark. What? Yeah. Looks like the ark. Looks like the ark. So, I'll explain that in a moment. So Hashem makes an oath on his chair, which looks like the ark, that he will destroy Amalek. Hmm. Okay. Let's see if we can put all this together. So. When it comes time every year to encounter the building of the temple, and we struggle, man. We're like, what's this magic building and golden box and a golden candle and a golden table? It's, it's very distressing to, like, modern Western ears, okay? We don't do cultic worship very well. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate with us. We tend to think of, like, barbarians when we, when we get into that sort of idea. Let's understand like this. I want to read for you Targum Yonasan from last week's Parsha, the end of Parsha's Mishpatim. When, when the Torah describes the vision on, on Har Sinai, when the Jews had Matan Torah and they saw Hashem, whatever that means, they perceived, they connected with the idea of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Pasuk says, Vayeru es Elohei Yisrael, and they saw the God of Israel, okay? V'tachas raglav, and under his, under his feet, kima'asei livnas ha-sapir uchaetzem ha-shamayim lotoha. Was like this sapphire, sapphire brickwork and as, as uh, pure as the heavens. So they saw God, and under his feet was a sapphire brick. What does that mean? Listen to the Targum Yonasan. Targum Yonasan says, And another of you lifted up their eyes. And they saw the glorious presence of God. And underneath Apipurin, man, there's that magic word. That's the word you got to know. That's the word you got to know. Apipurin. So what does Apipurin mean? Apipurin means a royal litter, a a palanquin, a royal litter. You know what a royal litter is? Like you've seen in the movies where the, where the servants are underneath the king or the queen and they're holding up on these bars. And then on top of the bars, there's this beautiful royal litter, this golden box where the king sits or the queen sits. That's a golden litter. You know what that looks a lot like? If you're a fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that looks a lot like the Ark. It looks like the Aron Kodesh. You know how the Torah refers to the Aron Kodesh? Apir Yon. Apirion, or in the language of Targum Yonasan, Apipurin, of course, because one is Aramaic and the other is Hebrew. It says in Shirashirim, Apirion, Apirion, a palanquin, a royal litter, God, God, of course, refers to God in Shirashirim. Um, God has a royal litter. And you know what the royal litter box looks like? The royal litter looks like the ark, which means it's God's train, it's Air Force One. That's how God travels. We'll explain that more in a moment also. So therefore, the Targum Yonason says, when the Jews looked up at Harsinai and saw God, what did they see? They saw a vision of Apirion, Apipurin. They saw a vision of God's royal litter, resembling the Asisa Aron Atseishitim. They saw the Aron. They saw a vision of what would eventually come to be the Ark. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Now, the thing that you and I perhaps notice about this ark business is that on top of the ark, on top of this golden box, there are these two little golden babies with golden wings. 
Those are the Kruvin, the cherubs that are on top of said box of God's litter, of God's royal litter. Well, now let's go back to Parshas Yisro, and let's tie together Yisro and Mishpatim and Truma and Adar and Purim and Kiseitze. It's going to be really awesome. Let's see if this makes any sense. So it goes like this. So right after, right after Matan Torah in Parshas Yisro, after the Ten Commandments, Akash Baruch comes to the Jews, and he says to Moshe, You saw that I spoke to you from the heavens. Don't make gods of silver and gods of gold. And like, I thought I'm not allowed to make gods of silver and gods of gold. Why do you have to tell me that again? And what does Rashi say right there? What does Rashi say? Cites the Medrash right after Matan Torah in Parshas Yisro. He says, you know what it means? It means don't make Kruvim out of silver. And if you make them, even if you make the Kruvim out of gold, if you make three and not two, then they're foreign gods. So if you make them out of the wrong metal, they're gods. And if you make them three instead of two, they're gods. And if you make them the right configuration, the right metal, and the right everything, but you put it in a different place, again, it's gods. So that means right after Akash Baruch Hu finishes talking to the Jews from heaven, the first thing he talks about is his chair. His chair. His royal litter. And says, don't make facsimiles of my chair. Don't corrupt the making of my chair. Air Force One has to be very, very perfectly structured this way. And that structure is what the Jews saw at Sinai when it says that Nadav and Aviu looked up and they saw Apipurim. They saw the royal litter of God. So, I want to say like this. The whole universe that we live in screams the glory of God. It, it shouts. It's obvious. Hashem's presence is obvious. The problem is it's only obvious to everything except humans. It's not obvious to humans. Why? Well, humans are very, very limited. Very limited. Our perspective is limited. So when you say, well, how come you don't notice God? Because what you're looking at is such a small sample size of the thing you think you see. You don't see the ecosystem that you look at when you look at a tree. You, look, you see tree. It's like, bro, you could spend decades analyzing all the various aspects that go into that tiny three by three that you call tree. Not to mention, that's just the tree itself. Not even talk about any of the wildlife that happens in, in this beautiful ecosystem around, surrounding the tree. The problem with humans is that God's presence can be absolutely everywhere, but we don't see it. We can't take advantage of it. The only way that you can harness God's presence is through a temple, which is why a temple has to exist now. See, before HaKadosh Baruch Hu revealed himself to the Jewish people on Har Sinai, there was no reason for a temple. But once you have a connection between God and the Jewish people as a direct connection, that brings God's, that brings God's presence into a palpable, a palpable idea for you in your mind. That's going to require specificity, and that's going to require um, tools. Tools for you to perceive God. God does not require an apir yom. does not require a palanquin, a royal litter. The only reason there's such a thing as royal litter is because for him to be noticeable by you, for God to, for God to interplay and interact with you, that requires your understanding. For you to understand things, you're going to have to have tools. That's the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple isn't to bring God into the world. God is in the world. The purpose of the temple is to bring God into a place where he can interact with you in a very specific way. And that's going to happen through specificity of materials, specificity of, of configuration of materials, specificity of area, and specificity of time. Now, the word that we use for all of these concepts, the word that we use for all of these concepts is moed. But the word moed means, the word moed means an intersection, a crossing over of things. 
but we talk about holidays. We say it's a moed. Why? Because you're crossing paths in time. When you cross paths with God in time, that's called moed, a holiday. When you cross paths with God in space, in an area, in a zone, we call that moed as well. It's intersection, the ohel moed, the tent of moed. It's the same word, literally the same word. And what do we call, and what do we call the ark? The palanquin, God's litter, what do we call it? We call it the Aron Ha Eidus. Moed, in the Oel Moed, with the Aron Ha Eidus. What does God do with Aron Ha Eidus? Well, why don't you look on page 448 after it tells you how to build the golden box. In Pasuk Beis, it says, Vino Arati Lecha Sham. And I will set my meetings with you there. And I will speak to you from on top of the cover, from between the Kruvim, on top of the Ark of the Testimony, all that I command you. Vino Aditi on Aron Ha'edus. So the Vino Aditi on the Aron Ha'edus in the Ohel Mo'ed, which all means to cross paths with, because the whole purpose of the Mikdash is for you to cross paths with God. Because otherwise, you wouldn't cross his path, you wouldn't notice him. So the way for you to notice him is to make your path and his intersect in a very, very fine point. Okay. Well, now let's take it back to Masa and Mariva and Ahmed. We said it should be called. It says the Jews argue with Moshe. They test God, and they call the place testing and arguing. Why? It should be called arguing and testing, not testing and arguing. Let's listen to what happened. The Jews show up, and there's nothing to drink. Why is there nothing to drink? Because Rafu Yedehem in Torah. Their hands became weak from Torah. When you have no Torah, when you have no Torah, you have no source, you have no water, you have no life source. So immediately, they go to Moshe and they fight with him. And they say, Moshe, you took us out to kill us. And Moshe says, Matari Vuni Madi, what are you fighting with me for? What do you mean, what are you fighting with me? I'm fighting with you because I want a can of Diet Coke. That's why I'm fighting with you. I haven't had a Diet Coke in three days. Moshe's point is, why are you fighting with me? I don't own the Diet Coke. I don't have the Slurpee machine. It's Hashem. Why are you fighting with me? And furthermore, Matin Asun is Hashem. Why are you testing God? What do you mean testing him? You're claiming that God took you out of Egypt to kill you through starvation in the desert. Are you crazy? You think that he did all of those tremendous miracles in order to bring you out in the desert to kill you because there's no soda on tap? Is that what you think? You're testing God. But since you can't talk to God because you don't perceive him directly, instead you fight with me. The way that you force the issue for God is by fighting with me. So now let's understand why the order is split. Really what you're doing is you're testing God. But in order to test God, you have to fight with Moshe. So you come and fight with Moshe. And Moshe says, Why are you fighting with me? Why are you testing Hashem? That's what you're really doing. Before you ever came to fight with me, it comes out after. But before you ever came to fight with me, the thing that's really on your mind is you're testing, is God with you or not? As it says in the Pasuk, What are the very next words? And Amalek came. And Amalek fought against Israel and Rafidim. And as we said before, that means that the reason that Amalek came is because they were in Rafidim. And we said that what that means is they doubted, is Hashem among us or not? And the reason that they were asking, is Hashem among us or not, is because Rafu Yedeya Minat Torah, their hands had become weak from the Torah. Because as we also said before, the fact that Hashem is with you all the time doesn't make it very noticeable to you. You don't see. 
You don't notice what's right there in front of you. You don't notice the tree for the tree and the ecosystem for the ecosystem. So when you ask, Hayesh Hashem Bekirvinu Vayim, is Hashem among us or not? The very next words, what that will always result in is Vayavu Amalek. Amalek is going to come attack you. And what does Hashem say? You know why? You know why we separate the mitzvah of Mechias Amalek to Parshas Kiseitze when really, truly, it belongs chronologically in Parshas Mashalach? Because there are two different issues here. One is your war with Amalek. That's Parshas Kiseitze. Zachor Asher Lecha Amalek. That's your fight with Amalek. That's a personal fight. You know when we talk about that? When we talk about the laws of war in Parshas Kiseitze. You know what we're talking about in Mashalach? God's war with Amalek. Milchama Hashem Ba'amalek Midor Dor. And what does it say there? Ki Yod Al Kes Yah. Because a hand on the chair of God. And says Rashi citing, citing the Medrash Chazal. Ein Hashem Sholem Be'in Hakisei Sholem. God's name and God's chair cannot be complete until Amalek is eradicated. But let's go right back, baby. God's chair. What chair? Apirion. His palanquin. God's Air Force One. God's Ark. The Aron cannot be Sholem. The vehicle, the vehicle that enables us to cross paths with Hashem in this world cannot happen until Amalek is destroyed. Why? Because Amalek is a function of the doubt as to whether or not Hashem is even here. When we ourselves doubt if Hashem is among us, that's when Amalek comes. So Hashem says, I have an eternal war with Amalek. Ki yadal case come. My hand is on my throne. My throne cannot be complete. My vehicle of existing in this world in a, in a perceivable manner from the Jewish people's perspective cannot happen until Amalek is destroyed. Well, well, let's go back to that original battle. So it says, Moshe, Moshe's hands go up. The Jews are victorious. His hands come down. The Jews start to lose. You think Moshe's hands, like the Mishnah says, either they're, they're the Moshe's hands or the things that do war? Obviously not. When Moshe is there and his hands are up, he succeeds in explaining to the Jewish people that they are connected to Hashem. And when that is clear to them, they can be victorious. But when Moshe's hands go down, they lose their connection to Hashem and they don't perceive that Hashem is there and they start losing to Amalek. So let's go back to our original question. You think that Haman might have been a little happy when he saw that he's going to eradicate the Jews in the chaotic month of Adar when Moshe goes away? There's going to be no Moshe. Now we can attack the Jews. Everybody thinks that Amalek, Amalek is a function of, oh yeah, Mordechai and Esther, or maybe Shaul, or maybe David, or maybe Melech HaMashiach. You're forgetting the very first guy, the first one that attacked Amalek, the first one that succeeded in weakening Amalek, of course, is none other than Moshe. Then Moshe, the guy who they were fighting with, which resulted in Amalek showing up in the first place. So really, if we can put this all together, it goes like this. The reason you need a temple to connect with Hashem is not because Hashem's presence isn't in the world. It's because Hashem's presence is not concentrated in the world. It's spread throughout the world. And that's why you don't see it, because you don't see, you don't see the forest. You see trees. So in order for you to interact in order for you to cross paths with Hashem, in order for you to intersect with Hashem, you have to intersect in a, t- in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way. That word is called mo'ed, to interact, to cross paths. Vino'adati. The vino'adati, the crossing of said paths, is going to be in the particular place called the Kodesh HaKadoshim, on a particular box, a palanquin called the Aron, in between those two kruvim, which is exactly the same vision that the Jews saw without the metal standing on the mountain 
the way that they were able to perceive God's interactive presence with them is the other. And that's why immediately after our Kodesh Baruch Hu speaks to the Jewish people in Harsinai, he says, now there's going to be worship. Let me tell you how you build my Air Force One. Because if you do it from the wrong metals, and that's why the first thing you start getting hints of in Parshas Yisro after Matan Torah is, of course, the Aron. And then again, what they see in Parshas Mishpatim is, again, the Aron. And then in Parshas Truma, where it opens it up and it tells you this is how you're going to build the Aron. And you're like, what Aron? Why do I need an Aron? It's because you haven't been paying attention in Parshas Yisro and Mishpatim. It's all about, it's all about enabling us to have a, a connection and an interaction with Hashem, which is the vinoadity. And I would just I, and I will leave you with this just so you can see, I think, a beautiful Raya in the Pasik. The Pasik says, the Pasik says, what are you going to put inside of said box? So on page 446 it says, uh, Pasik and you will put into, and you will put into the box the testimony that I give you. Now you'll notice it says Vinasata Elha Aron, which means you will give to the Aron. So Rashi says, which means like when it says you will put to the Aron, it means you will put in. It says if it said Ba'aron in the box. Now, of course, the very, very simple question that you might ask is, but it doesn't say Ba'aron. That's what it says. That's how it says. Rashi on the left-hand column in the penultimate line. It says, and you will put to the Aron, like in the Aron. So why didn't the Pasuk say, you will put in the Aron, the Edus that I give you? And the answer is, because you don't put, you don't put the Luchos in the Aron, as in this is the box that holds the Luchos. The Luchos are the batteries they're the power source that activates the whole palanquin, the whole interaction between you and God, the no-oddity, which is why the luchos aren't called luchos. They're called edos. Because remember, it's about moed, the no-oddity, the interaction and the intersection, me crossing paths with Hashem. So if that's the case, it doesn't say you put them in the box. It's venasata el ha'aron. You give to the box, as in they power the box. They change the character of the box, and they make this golden box go from a box to a royal litter. So it's not venasata ba'aron. It's venasata el ha'aron. You give it the power source that's going to activate the entirety of said Mishkan, which is the vision that they saw in Sinai, which is what they had immediately God warns them about not to corrupt after after said vision. And of course, and of course, the thing that we have to remember is that Amalek shows up, Amalek shows up when we lose our understanding and connection that Hashem is here with us. And the Torah says, why do we lose that connection? Where does that doubt come from? The fighting with Moshe, the doubting of God, the testing of God. Where does that come from? It comes from Rafidin, Rafu Yudim in Torah. When you don't learn Torah, you stop seeing the forest. You stop seeing Hashem's presence. It's not that it's not there, because like we said, it's always there. It's everywhere. It's patently obvious. It shouts, it screams. The world, Melochol Haaretz Kavodo. The world screams Hashem's presence, but we have a great inability to see it because Rafu Yudayam in Torah, and that's what always, always results in Amalek. Have an amazing week and an amazing Shabbos.